We're happy to have this episode sponsored by Real Mushrooms. You probably already know about some of the great benefits of adding mushrooms to your diet, like better sleep, greater mental clarity, and a stronger immune system. But not all mushroom products are equal. Real Mushrooms is the real deal. Many mushroom companies harvest the mushroom and the grain it's growing on. Real Mushrooms products contain no grains or starch fillers. They're organic, cultivated naturally, and third-party verified for beta-glucans, the compound that makes them so valuable as a supplement. They even have a science and medical team of doctors who ensure that Real Mushrooms meets the highest standards. What I personally love is how informative their website is. Have questions about what mushroom is right for you? They have a robust blog with articles ranging from women's health to what mushrooms are most beneficial to your pet. Want to boost your immune system? Have better sleep and feel more calm? Grab the link in the show notes and get 25% off of your first order. Curiously enough, acupuncture is not just sticking needles into people. It's part of a coherent and observation-based medicine that experienced practitioners of the art have handed down over the centuries. I'm Michael Max, your host and guide of Everyday Acupuncture. Listen in as we explore how you can apply the principles of this ancient medicine in your everyday life. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Michael Max, and I'm really pleased to have a good friend of mine, Daniel Altshuler, with us today. I met Daniel, oh my God, I can't even remember how many years ago, living in Taiwan. He was there, I was there, and uh, we connected around medicine. We've been good pals ever since. He helped me a lot with my book, actually. And even more than that, his wife makes amazing cookies, and we love to sit down for cookies and tea. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael. I really appreciate you inviting me to the show. I'm pretty excited to do this. Uh, I think it's an amazing thing that you've done, and I hope it benefits many, many people. That's that's really the goal of it, is, is to help people with their health and their well-being and, and making some decisions about what to do, and, and uh, maybe Chinese medicine can be a piece of that. So the topic today is strokes and treating stroke. Now, you've spent quite a bit of time in Asia, both Taiwan and then did a PhD over in uh, mainland China in Guangzhou. Tell us a little bit about how strokes are treated over in Asia. You have a not small amount of experience with that. I, I have to be clear that I have to speak for Taiwan more than Asia in general, although I, I believe mainland China and, and Taiwan are, are re- relatively similar. Uh, I know that in Taiwan, strokes are, are very common. Lifestyle, smoking, alcohol, uh, high blood pressure is a pretty big problem uh, over there, like, like in many places in the world. But it seems to be particularly a big problem there. And uh, it's definitely still in the realm of Western medicine, like, like, like in here. But people will seek out Chinese medicine very quickly. People also have a tendency to stay in hospitals for weeks and weeks in Taiwan, I think the healthcare system enables that because it's relatively cheap. Yeah, they've got a great healthcare system over there, don't they? It's pretty amazing. the The doctors are phenomenal, and the money out people's pockets for uh, excellent healthcare is fairly affordable. So, 
uh, it's something that we over here in the U.S. should take a look at. It's definitely something quite quite different. Yeah. Well, it's it's a one pair system, so <laughs> good luck with us doing that. That's true. Yeah. The other thing that I think is pretty interesting and also I think quite helpful in some ways is that family members are not only allowed to, but they're expected to be part of the patient's care in the hospital. And this this isn't directly related to stroke itself, but certainly when a family member is uh, dazed and confused and you know depressed in the hospital, uh, family members are you know definitely going to make that a better experience. Would you say that's a piece of Asian culture that encourages that kind of thing? I, I definitely think so. The, the West, uh, when I guess we should be clear, I guess uh, we're talking maybe Europe and America, had a period of time when people were not allowed to be in the hospital. Medicine becomes a very private and almost a secret thing. Doctors become sacred, and people even children who were sick in the early 1900s were, were not allowed to have family visits except, you know, maybe a short time each day. And that is just not the case in, uh, in, in the U.S., I'm sorry, in, in Taiwan at all or, or China or many other countries. It reminds me of uh, working in Dr. Zhang's office when I was there studying with him. And it, there was such an incredible social aspect to the medicine there. People would come in, they'd guahao, they'd take a number, they'd sit down and to wait, right? They might wait 10 minutes, they might wait two hours. But if you came in in the morning, you'd be seen in the morning. That was for sure. That's right. And what are they doing in the meantime? They're hanging out in the waiting room, they're drinking tea, they're gossiping, they're talking with one another. And it's not like we have it here in the United States where people come in to see the doctor and it's almost like going into confession or something. You go into this quiet, private, sanitized place to whisper your secrets it's there's such a larger social dimension over there that yes, seems I, it just seemed really helpful in some ways it wasn't it didn't make it so onerous that, that we're bearing these burdens well and and after you see that other people have diseases as well it becomes less frightening less you know uh, what's the word less um isolating really mm. and so the fear factor of disease is diminish just a little bit. In the U.S., I find many of my patients come in with, with anything, and they they think they're the only ones with those problems. Right. Or maybe just them and their million friends on the internet that they're chatting with about it. Oh, that's true, too. <laughs> it's uh, But that's, that's uh, so impersonal that you get more uh, anxiety from people using social media to talk about their nightmares or, or things like that. And I think there's something to being in a doctor's office and having a grandmother come up and slap you on the back and give you advice right in front of the doctor. Uh, <laughs> totally unwelcomed, but also somewhat relieving, I think, to think that there is a community involvement with your with your problems. Yeah. I, I really missed I, I missed that aspect of medicine here in the States. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, it, it's helpful. So let's wind this back to stroke for a moment. And uh, tell us more about how that's dealt with in Taiwan, what your experience is. Well, uh, people, like I said, they do get sent to the emergency room and they get all the same treatment that one would expect in any uh, modern hospital. 
Mm-hmm. And so, and so, I'm just for a moment because a lot of our listeners here might not be sure what actually happens in the hospital. They just know people go to the hospital, they get treated, whatever that is. What happens from a Western medicine point of view in the hospital? How are people being treated? Well, it it depends a lot on the type of stroke. Uh, there are many different types of strokes. Um, basically speaking, uh, maybe we can talk about it more in detail later. But there's Strokes where you have uh, relatively minor uh, incidents, uh, that tends to be issues like blood clots, uh, embolisms, uh, things like that. And those sometimes are uh, treated very simply with blood thinners or, um, or just bed rest, blood pressure monitoring or, or management. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's the case of uh, something major, even with a, a, a blood clot of some sort, or with a hemorrhaging, then sometimes surgery is necessary. And usually you have to be taken care of within, within minutes or within a very short time, within an hour or two, if there's going to be a good outcome from a Western point of view. Right. Usually it's all about managing that initial moment, preventing further damage to the brain after the initial incident. And it just depends on whether you need to stop the bleeding or enhance the blood flow. Mm-hmm. That sounds a little Chinese medicine-ish, doesn't it? It, it is indeed. And, yeah. and it's very similar yeah, in some ways. But we're, we do it a little bit better, actually. <laughs> so talk to us about what acupuncture and Chinese herbs can do. And at what point in the process you would start using them? If you're trained well, you could theoretically... Uh, catch a patient, if you were to walk down the street and see somebody in the throes of a stroke or if somebody happened to walk into your clinic, you could, if you were trained well, uh, do a lot to uh, stop the progression of the stroke and then uh, at the same time immediately start to help the patient heal. It's very rare for an acupuncturist or anybody in Chinese medicine to have that experience, uh, at least purposefully. Uh, we're not allowed to. We probably at this point we don't have the equipment to do that properly, or the training or experience. Yeah, I would think that would be a very specialized aspect of training. But I think it's it's a type of first aid that even if we're not allowed to use it as a normal scope of practice, I think it's still something that Chinese practitioners, maybe all all practitioners, just like CPR, something that we should be aware of and have at least a weekend course. And, you know, it's, it is something that happens a lot. It can happen to somebody when you're sitting in a concert or hiking in the woods, or somebody can come into your, into your clinic thinking that they have uh, just a simple headache, but they actually have a, an early stage ongoing stroke. And it doesn't mean that you have to treat them as primary care, but as a first aid measure, there's a lot of stuff we can do. You know, mm-hmm. as one hand is calling 911, your other hand could be doing something. I think it's something that we shouldn't ignore. Uh, I, I'm, you know, I remember, and now this is a while ago when I was in acupuncture school, we did have some discussion about what you could do for a stroke if it was happening. But because I haven't, I've never seen that and haven't practiced it, I've completely forgotten all of it. Right. I've taken that knowledge and given it all back to the teacher. Yes, yes. Uh, hopefully, you get your money back. But uh, <laughs> I, uh, 
You know, I take a CPR course pretty much every year. And at least a few months later, if I, if you were to ask me to repeat what I did in that course, I, I don't know if I could remember either. And that's something I do every year. Mm-hmm. But I, I hope that if I ever have that situation, which I don't hope for, but if, if I do, then at least some rudimentary uh, habits will, I, I'll be informed with something, some tools that I can do. I didn't think I'd be asking this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Because there's probably a few practitioners listening. What are some of the basics that a practitioner might want to consider if they see someone having a stroke? And we're talking first, you know, as one hand's dialing 911. Sure. You know, the other hand is doing what kind of primary things? Yeah, this is actually interesting because it's pretty widespread knowledge in, I have to say, at least Taiwan, uh, some of these first aid measures. And uh, the reason is that there are, religious groups, uh, Buddhist groups especially, that out of their own feeling of compassion spread these basic first aid measures for stroke around in pamphlets or through emails. And one of them is bleeding the fingers. And this is a really interesting technique. Uh, This gets into uh, an amazing aspect of Chinese medicine that was lost in, in the West, bloodletting. And it sounds barbaric to the uninitiated, but it's actually, I think, one of the most powerful systems in Chinese medicine for a, a multitude of things. I've watched it take away an early onset of shingles. And I've seen it actually help somebody survive a stroke in the brainstem. So this, it's, it's pretty amazing. And the, the idea is that the end of our channels, our uh, energy channels, our qi channels, however you want to look at them, end in the, end in the hand and feet, uh, the digits, the fingers and toes. And the fingers are the most accessible. And they also, uh, for other reasons, deal with the brain because of their association with the heart and pericardium and things that in Chinese medical world are code names for mentality and consciousness and, and other functions. And so one of the classic techniques is to just prick a, uh, prick a small hole at the fingertips, each of the fingertips. So you would do 10 pricks as fast as you can and, and squeeze as much blood out as you, as you can. And again, this sounds barbaric, and you're not uh, taking pints of blood out. We're talking really drops, uh, no more than a few drops from each finger. And the process somehow takes the pressure off of the, off of the cerebral blood flow and allows the body to stop the bleeding within the brain. It's a pretty amazing technique. Yeah. And so this is distributed, again, in Taiwan by Buddhist organizations or other religious organizations, primarily Buddhist. To lay people, regular Taiwanese citizen would consider doing this. I don't know who would consider doing it, but I would guess that uh, if you were to ask any random person on the street, they would have at least probably have come across some information about this or, or heard about it somehow. Right. So it's not necessarily for the med- – again, we're back to this thing. Medicine is something that there is a profession for, but it's also partly embedded in the culture and embedded in family and relationships. That's right. It's true medicine. This is listed in the classics. It's part of professional Chinese medical training. But it's also something that's been lifted up and, and sent around into the folk culture so that pretty much any grandmother or, or person that's been around a little bit has probably heard about it. 
I wonder if we could dig up one of these pamphlets and put it on the show notes page. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I've even started getting email circulations that have been translated into English. You know, it, it's it's come into my box a few years ago by uh, somebody. Uh, maybe it was my my parents, or I forget who it was, but said, "Oh, you do Chinese medicine? Have you heard of this? You should check this out." <laughs> so, <laughs> and it was exactly the same information that I was seeing in in Chinese in Taiwan. You know, day after day as I was walking down the street. Uh, you know, this is also something that's, uh, you know, like CPR, it also has its dangers. If if you start doing CPR on somebody that isn't having a heart attack or whose heart hasn't stopped, you, you might be able, you might end up causing damage. You could cause mischief, yeah. Yeah, it's not something to take lightly, but, you know, it's definitely 911 first. But, uh, you know, if it's something that uh, you see happening your spouse or somebody next to you, well, I, I think it's probably something to consider. Yeah. Okay. Let's move forward then. Let's say someone's had a stroke. They've received whatever Western medical treatment. How is Chinese medicine helpful in the recovery? Recovery for any neurological problem ideally happens as close to onset as possible. You have in the initial onset of any of a stroke, uh, let's just take a stroke, you have usually it's, unless it's a major arterial rupture, that type of hemorrhage, usually it's actually a small blood vessel that's been occluded or blocked or a small vessel that's ruptured. What happens is that the surrounding cells that depend on that blood vessel for support die off. But it, they don't die a natural death. They don't undergo what's called apoptosis, which is kind of the good death for a cell, where it dies in an orderly way. Uh, a cell that dies through sudden blood loss, infarction, which is called, or, or oxygen deprivation, or through blood seeping out onto the cell, which is not the way the cell needs to have the blood supply, mm -hmm. it, the, the cell undergoes a death called necrosis. And then in necrosis, the cell basically bursts open. And the, the matter that's inside the cell, the cytoplasm, leaks out. So it's literally kind of like a train wreck. Yes, a bit. Uh, actually, more, unfortunately, uh, like a suicide bomber. Because what happens is the cytoplasm is toxic to surrounding cells. And so that causes cell death to neighboring cells. And those cells die off and cause further damage to those neighboring cells. And so you get what's called a, a penumbra. You get, you get your initial blast of death. And then that over time, and, it could, and time could be minutes or hours or, or sometimes many hours, depending on the severity and the type of stroke, can cause what you might almost consider unnecessary damage. And so that's why it's so important to get to the hospital or to do, uh, to do something right away. And in Chinese medicine, if we are able to get to the hospital very quickly, we can also, and we have training, or if we, we I, I shouldn't say we get to the hospital, but if, even if the patient is stable and we have hospital privileges and able to do something, we can help the process of regeneration very quickly and stop that cascade of further damage. 
But let's say that most of us aren't going to have that ability to see patients that fast, or patients may not know enough to come to see us that fast. They haven't listened to this show yet. They haven't listened to the show. But even if you take a patient that's had a stroke uh, and you're able to see them within a few days or within a week, and that would be in the recovery time period of seeing a patient, still quite ideal, then uh, you can, before the uh, muscles have atrophied, before nerves have atrophied, you can very uh, quickly uh, use acupuncture, you can use herbs, you can even use certain types of Chinese medical tuena or massage bodywork type of treatments to stimulate the body, stimulate the nerves, stimulate the muscles to wake up and get going. And also with proper training, again, you can help the, often after stroke, blood pressure is high and unstable, intracranial pressure is high and unstable. And using uh, the proper techniques, you can gradually, gradually, gradually help that decline. And again, that's preventing further damage with or, or, or a second stroke, for example. And that's still, I would consider, Chinese medicine first aid, even in that first week of treatment. Mm-hmm. So after that, then I'm not sure how, how, how technical to talk about it, but uh, definitely using some well-placed acupuncture needles and in places that are probably best far farthest away from the head. Uh, for example, uh, between the big toe and the second toe in that space is, is a very important point called Tai Chong, which is the third point on the liver channel. That can help, even just massaging that place can help the blood circulation in the brain. It can help the intracranial pressure drop. There's a place between the uh, the thumb and the first finger in the hand, which is called the hugu or the tiger's mouth in martial arts is what it's is very, very famous spot. You can take your finger and press on that, and that also can stimulate regeneration and have the person consciously wake up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Those are really big, heavy hitter acupuncture points. They do lots of things. Yeah, you could probably make a career out of just using those two points in your clinic for many, many years without anybody knowing the difference <laughs> and yeah. still and still do a lot of good. Right. So those are good because from the acupuncture point of view, it really helps stimulate motion in the body and it helps clear out different kinds of stagnation. Absolutely. In, in Chinese medicine, liver is associated, the liver system, we have to be careful, uh, Chinese medicine uses code words and liver is a code word for the liver organ, but also a system of things that includes uh, blood, blood circulation, blood supply, ensures a smooth flow of qi, uh, which is, I don't want to call it energy because that's not quite right. Oh, it's a terrible word to translate. It's a terrible word, but it's, all, you know, I think in a simple way, we could say the functioning of the organs, mm. uh, at least for our purposes. Yeah. Uh, and it also, of course, you know all this, Michael, but it's, you know, the source of wind. And wind is very interestingly what in Chinese medicine is... Now, that's a code word again. Let's remind our listeners, wind is a code word. Yeah, it might be actually interesting to talk about this because in in Chinese language, the word for stroke is literally stricken by wind. And there's many levels of stroke that the Chinese have addressed. They go from very superficial to very deep. And it, it's all connected with the the channel system 
from the very superficial channels at the skin level to the deepest ones into the organs and the organs itself. Yeah, I think this would be worth taking a a quick look at. Could you give us a sort of condensed rundown of, again, from this Chinese medicine point of view, least superficial to more deep, and what kinds of strokes that would correlate with from the Western point of view? Sure. In the modern neurological world, they have been able to pinpoint what type of stroke or where what part of the brain has been damaged will lead to what kind of symptoms. And that could be anything from facial paralysis to childlike laughing and crying behavior, all kinds of things. Chinese didn't really understand the, the parts of the brain in that sense, but they took it in the, um, they categorized it according to what part of the channel system, as I said. So, for example, in the very early stage or very light stage, if damage if the so-called wind pathogen uh, strikes at the surface of the very superficial channels, collaterals, almost like these uh, pre-channel, very, how would you translate a lul, Michael? I'm not really sure how to translate that. I would just call it a superficial branch, like you would have a, a small stream that feeds a river. Perfect. Okay, a superficial branch, a tributary of some sort. Mm. Then you have things like just minor facial paralysis, but, but nothing else. So that might be Bell's palsy type of a condition. If the pathogen, this wind, goes a little bit deeper, then you get numbness in the skin. Let's see. I have to remember all these. If it goes a little bit deeper into the channel system, uh, which is more like the rivers, then you get heaviness and, and less coordination in your limbs. And usually... For China, you know, for stroke would be hemiparesis or half half the body. So, by the, when it gets to the channels, usually you have uh, half the body is immobile or unusable, right. and so that would be in the channels. If it goes to the organs, then they say, well, then you don't recognize people. So then you're that's a, a issue of consciousness. And if it goes into the deeper organs, the so-called zong or yin organs, then uh, not only are you muddled and confused, but it, you have Things like aphasia, you can't speak very well, you can't hear very well, you have froth coming out of your mouth, things like that that are much more serious. In, in Chinese, in Western medicine, that would be a very dangerous, all these are dangerous signs, but that would be you know, very difficult to recover from. Hope you're enjoying the show. I'd love to know about what topics are of interest to you. If you have a health concern, or if you want to know specifics about how acupuncture can help to promote vibrant well-being, visit the website at www.everydayacupuncturepodcast.com and send an email. Tell us more about treatment. Now, it's really popular. A lot of folks have heard that you want to do all this scalp acupuncture for a stroke. And I just heard you saying a few minutes ago, you really want to look toward the extremities. My suspicion is you probably want to do different things at different times, depending on the situation. What are your thoughts? Absolutely. You know, the, uh, the fingertip thing is for emergency first aid if somebody's on the commuter train and, and has an incident. That's it. And never again. 
scalp acupuncture is is it a pretty amazing, very sophisticated system that was developed in this century, and it it's not I wouldn't call it a traditional technique at all. It's it's based on the mapping of the brain, and so the needles are placed on the scalp at the same location that if you were to remove your scalp, that part of the brain would be associated with uh, a function that you're trying to enhance. For example, uh, there's a motor movement is a, is a line that's a, a little bit in front and above the, the ear on the scalp towards the top. And, and you, there's a line that goes from there straight down to ending right just about in front of the hairline. And right next to that is there's one that's motor uh, function and one that's sensory function. And if you look at the actual mapping of the brain by any neuro neurologist or neurosurgeon, neuroanatomist, that's the exact spot that that happens. And somehow when you put a needle there, it'll stimulate, help stimulate, help the, that part of the brain function a little better. So we're not necessarily talking where the stroke was. We're talking about the location of the function that the stroke has affected. Uh, yes. And so by, by putting needles in those places skillfully, uh, and usually with very strong stimulation, you can enact an almost immediate uh, recovery, or I should say a, an, immediate, um, an immediate reaction in the patient of, of, a, of some benefit. Uh, for example, you can often see almost like a faith healer uh, uh, situation where you put somebody isn't able to move their hand and then you put a needle in that location in, in, in the corresponding location and stimulate it. The patient can sometimes very quickly move their hand. It's almost, un, it's almost unexplainable. That's a little, a little uncanny. When you say strong stimulation, what are you referring to here? Uh, twisting that needle and, and, and creating that, that uh, nerve stimulation uh, other people use uh, put elect electrodes on the end of it, a very small current to stimulate that area. But it has to be remembered that that as as amazing as uh, scalp acupuncture is, that benefit of that patient like suddenly lifting their hand is not usually sustainable. It that that effect will go away in the hours or or maybe a day or two after that treatment. And so it's it's not a it isn't a miracle cure. It's it's something that helps, but um, in the best of cases, it still takes weeks and months for recovery. Mm -hmm. So how often? Well, let's say it lasts for two days. What if somebody goes in every other day and gets treated? It definitely helps, especially in the early stages. If you're able to catch a patient in the early stages, within the days or week, uh, two weeks, even pushing it to three weeks following the stroke, uh, some pretty amazing recoveries can happen. And you're right. Every, somebody is able to come in, uh, two or three times a week, uh, with a, with a skilled acupuncturist who does scalp needling or other body needling. Uh, you can get some pretty fast results. P uh, patients, uh, can, can get better on the average, uh, pretty fast. And that doesn't mean that every patient's going to get better in the same speed. You know, different parts of the brain can be affected, or in Chinese medicine, different parts of the, the channel system can be affected. And so some people may get better within a week. They're, I've seen patients get up and start walking within a couple of weeks. Uh, other patients, it's still six months or a year. And 
you know, maybe they have 20% recovery or 60% recovery. Some people get 80, 90% recovery. Um, but it's pretty hard for somebody to get 100% recovery, maybe even 99% recovery. But there's always, there's always uh, going to be, there's always going to be something sure. that continues to be treated. Well, one of the amazing things about the human brain is that it's actually fairly plastic. So even though some cells have been lost or compromised, often the brain will route around it. Do you have any thoughts about how acupuncture helps with that neuroplasticity? Well, they've done uh, studies where they've put needles in, in patients and then shoved them into the MRI. These are just studies, not, not necessarily you know, patients with a disease, just simple studies. And I remember one study that was done, I don't know, a couple of decades ago maybe, by this uh, Korean radiologist at the University of Pennsylvania. And I, I don't remember where I saw this, but I, I remember it very clearly. This is maybe one of the earlier studies. And he put some needles in that same location I talked about uh, between the first toe and the second toe, mm-hmm. that liver spot. Right. And he, he wasn't an acupuncturist. He just, just was interested in, in he put that needle into Tai Chung and put the body, the, it's not the body, the patient <laughs> into the MRI. <laughs> Complete with their body. Complete with their body. And found that the area of the brain that associated with the liver had an increased circulation at that time. So it, it, as, as in the words of the radiologist, it lit up. Yeah. And so there's a, there's a definite effect of acupuncture that's placed anywhere in the body. There's a direct effect uh, into the brain. You know, I remember there was a, another study. It might be the same guy that needled, uh, was it Guangming? It's on the gallbladder channel, the point that's for uh, bright vision. Right. And it would light up the visual, co- the visual cortex. Right. And there's so many studies that are, uh, it's not really learning acupuncture. They're just proving in a modern way what the classics have been talking about in code words for thousands of years. And it's very exciting, actually. It's, it's very exciting. So, you know, the one thing that I, I learned from my teacher uh, I mean, this is not a secret or anything, but it's something that he really instilled in me is that acupuncture is really all about uh, working and manipulating the nervous system in, in a big way. I mean, there's other things that go on too, but you know, if you have a patient with neurological trauma, uh, stroke or spinal damage, and you put a needle in an area that has absolutely no nerve supply, no, no nerve functioning. It's completely numb, like a piece of wood. You're not going to get a huge result. So, you know, acupuncture can directly affect, as long as the needle is in, is in a good place, in an appropriate place, as in, as, and is in a place where it can stimulate some aspect of the nervous system, then you're going to influence the brain very quickly, within seconds. And so that's why acupuncture is so helpful for stroke patients. That's it's just a very big reason why it helps stroke patients. It it just makes the brain it wakes it up. It wakes up some part of it or or a major part of it. So that's the kind of a no nonsense approach to why it can happen. But you know, there's also some other reasons that people forget. One of the main reasons why American American patients see acupuncturists is for stress relief and, and relaxation. And, you know, 
that's probably a huge cause of many people's strokes. And also is one of the reasons, one of the major issues when people are in recovery from stroke. Is, oh my goodness. I, I, they're often, they're so anxious and keyed up. And the family members, right? So by, by, if you were to just have no training at all on how to treat stroke, but just help people relax and calm down, that's going to go a long way just by itself. What are some, what are some other self-care things that stroke patients could do for themselves? And on the other side of it, what are some things that they might want to consider avoiding? Well, you know, one of my first advice, uh, pieces of advice to people, especially with stroke, but uh, with any major disease, is to, is to find a certain amount of calm and peace in their life, uh, to, to engage in activities that make them happy. Uh, and that's so important. Uh, stroke patients... That sounds like it has nothing to do with medicine. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely not at all, Michael, not at all. It, it <laughs> no, but really, I mean, when we think about medicine, it, it, it's completely divorced from this sense of presence in one's life with whatever life one has at that moment. Yeah, you know, I think it depends on where you are. I, I, I know more than a few uh, family practitioners in Seattle where I'm, where I'm currently living that teach their patients biofeedback. It's like, what is that doing in a doctor's office? But, you know, I think it's pretty amazing. Well, it is. Well, you're out there on the left coast, too. Uh, that is right. That is right. But, you know, patients sit there in a waiting room for some, you know, in, in most doctor's offices, maybe 10, 15 minutes, sometimes a half an hour, sometimes an hour. Why don't they put a biofeedback machine in there and let, let patients sit and engage in there's like these computer programs that you can uh strap onto your fingers and engage in biofeedback it's a great idea yeah why not it's a great idea because you know in taiwan they don't need that because you got the old grandma there to slap you on the back and kind of <laughs> you know wake you up <laughs> but that's you know, right but we don't have that so we need the biofeedback machines that's right there's no it's like being in an elevator you don't really want to talk to the person sitting next to you <laughs> what person <laughs> so yeah so this this aspect of enjoying your life this aspect of just settling into what's what's going on that's important i think that's really important and and then that's that's the uh the happy finding happiness piece of advice um but it's it's really important the other two things that i f find are i i just can't stop myself from telling patients is one is get the life rhythms in order and it doesn't matter if this is uh, about preventative medicine. Uh, obviously, much better to do this before somebody has a stroke. But even after they have a stroke, uh, especially if they're a person that's functioning, we're talking about people who are conscious and, and, and alert enough to be able to help themselves to some degree, is get their sleeping in order, get their eating and their diet in order, um, to get a little exercise. Even if they're in a wheelchair, that, that's not an excuse for not moving. Which leads me to my third problem. My third advice is to move. Um, moving is so important. And that needs to happen from as soon as a patient is stabilized and out of the ICU ward, movement is so important. And if the patient can't move him or herself, then the caregiver has to do it for them. And it's just movement, movement, movement. 
And, and if there's something wrong with the hand or the foot that can't move, then move the hand that's is healthy. Move the other side. Do whatever you can do in that way. Absolutely. And that's going to stimulate uh, the, the brain and the body to just want to heal. I want to ask you a quick little follow-up on this. Uh, your point number two, which was get some regularity to your to your daily life. Could you unpack that a little bit for us? What's the importance of regularity with with sleep and food and, and whatever else? Well, the circadian rhythms are are so under they're they're ignored. Uh, and I've seen I've seen reports recently in major scientific journals that show that people who are not engaged in in following the the natural circadian rhythms are at risk for high high uh, blood pressure, for elevated diabetes, um, cholesterol, all these problems that we run to the doctor for pills with. You know, there's so much that we can do for ourselves to allow our bodies to be healthy. And this is, this is not new age talk anymore. This is, you know, very high quality scientific laboratory research. Um, so blood pressure, cholesterol, blood sugar, major factors for the risk of stroke are all, um, bigger deals are, they are much bigger issues when you're not taking care of yourself. And I'm, I'm the worst person to say this because I, I regularly go to sleep around one o'clock every night, but you know, we should, even if we don't have the ability or the desire to sleep at, I don't know when farmers went to sleep in the early days, I don't know, seven, eight o'clock at night. Depends on the time of year. To, right. Uh, or if you're in Seattle or, or, you know, when it might not be dark until 10, right. Mm. But at least I instruct my patients to try to find regularity. So if you go to sleep at midnight every night, which I'm not saying you should do, but if you do, then go to sleep at 12 as regularly as you can. So don't sleep sometimes at nine and sometimes at two in the morning. Try to find a certain regularity. The body needs to know what to expect. And that's very important. And food too, when you eat, you know, eating, uh, you know, three meals a day, or if for some reason you're just deciding to do two meals a day or four meals a day, do it regularly. Don't eat sometimes at seven in the morning and sometimes at 10. It's, it's not, the body doesn't know how to deal with that food as well. The stomach and the sleeping processes, um, are, they're, they're highly regulated by our internal clock. And so if, if the body's expecting food to come in and it does, it can process it better. The stomach juices start secreting. The peristalsis works at the time it needs to. And so everything is just functioning so much better. I would think especially after some kind of a incident like a stroke, that would be extremely disorienting, not just to the person in their consciousness, but to all of the physiological processes as well. So by regulating your lifestyle again as quickly as possible, you're, you're giving the body sort of a nudge into the right direction. Is that, is that the way that you're thinking about it? I, I think it's, it's multi-layered. Uh, the first is just the biological systems can start to be prepared and start to know when it's going to exercise, when it's going to go for physical therapy, when the food is going to come in. And if it's a patient that's disoriented, then uh, you, you, you have to treat 
you don't, I shouldn't say you have to treat, but it's, it's helpful in some ways, and this is not demeaning anyway, but to treat a patient who's had a stroke, especially one that does affect consciousness in, in any degree, you know, from just slightly muddled to completely in a coma, to treat them almost like a child in the sense that uh, they, they don't understand what's going on. And the, the best way to teach a child as, as a parent, and I'm, I'm already, again, uh, showing my, my faults because I'm so bad at this with my own kids, but is to engage in a, in a very predictable habit. Habit life is what um, the Walder School likes to call it, is habit life, to engage in that. So, and that goes uh, hour to hour, day to day. You have a weekly rhythm, you have an hourly rhythm, but you also have a very small minute-to-minute rhythms. And that way, the patients are not surprised, they're not confused. In a very quick way, they somehow um, mentally and, and their body knows exactly when to expect what's coming. And so it's not about, it's time for your exercise, let's go do it. They, you just go and do it. And so there's not really giving the patient uh, a a chance to have a choice and to be depressed and frustrated and, and decide they don't want to do it that day. It just kind of happens. You just go do it. You just go do it. Yeah. What kinds of things should people avoid? Or if you're a caretaker, what are some things that you would want to avoid in, in the process of helping somebody to recover and get better? I think you have to take your ego and throw it away, leave it at the door. Stroke patients are frustrated at the best, if they're alert and conscious, they're frustrated, they're depressed, um, they're embarrassed, and they're disc- they're inconvenienced, and so they're going to have a lot of bad moments. They're going to have a lot of bad tempers and bad moods. Um, they're not going to be able to say what they want to say, so they're frustrated, and so you need to just be aware of that and. Um, you know, get training for how to deal with that. I'm sure every hospital and every community and the internet and, you know, all kinds of books in the, in the, in the library can talk about best methods uh, to, to deal with that. And so you need to, if, if a patient gets angry and spits at you and curses at you, you, just, you can't take that personally. And so, you, you know, just making things happen and doing it in the best way possible is, is all, all you can expect. Just, just gotta, just gotta do it. Engaging the community, uh, taking medicine or taking the, the disease out of the secret caves of the hospital room mm. also help a lot. Mm-hmm. Community of support churches, um, all kinds of communities out there are, are really waiting to help. You just have to find them. Right. And then participate and participate. Absolutely. Great. Wow. This is, uh, this has been wonderful today. Any last thoughts or comments that you'd have for our listeners on this particular subject? Yeah. You know, we, I don't know if we've talked a lot about specific methods for Chinese medicine, but you know, one thing that I not sure if I've really made the point was when I was in Taiwan, this kind of goes back to your first question, which I think I didn't really answer very well. I would say that in any given Chinese medical clinic, in any given day, a majority, I don't want to put a percentage on it, but a a majority of patients are stroke patients. You know, and I'm not talking about the famous hospitals or famous physicians. I'm talking about just 
any neighborhood clinic that may not even be very good. You'll see a waiting room full of people who are in recovery for stroke. And they may have needles, needle acupuncture needle treatments only. They may have herb treatment. They may have needles and herbs, but they're getting treatment. Um, in the States, I've been here now, I guess, nine years. <laughs> Time flies, doesn't it? It's amazing. Yeah. I've, I've only had probably three stroke patients come my way. And I just, I've told people, I've told my students where I teach at, you know, it's like, where are the stroke patients? I don't know where they are. You know, th there have been studies. I remember the NIH had a conference years ago in Maryland uh, about what acupuncture is all about. You know, I didn't participate, but I, I paid attention to it and, and followed the results. And I remember there was some issue. It's like, what are we going to say acupuncture is good for? At that time, I remember there was somebody that came up and gave a report saying, well, if you do acupuncture as a main therapy for stroke, you can expect about 20% improvement over a year. And of, of course, every patient's different, but that was somehow the result of the study. And, I, and I'm sorry, I can't quote where or what that study is, and I hope I'm not completely off base, but that's somewhat true. And this is just with simple acupuncture and no herbs. You know, 20% improvement is a whole lot better than, than no improvement or just a little bit of improvement. You know, every, everybody's going to improve somewhat if you make it past the acute stage, you know, most people will get better to some degree, but man, 20% is a lot more than, than one or two or 5%. It is. And well, the thing that stands out in my mind, and, and certainly I've seen this too, the number of people that line up in Taiwan to get treated for this, you know, all cultures have their things that they do for no good reason. Yes. One thing that I've noticed about uh, Chinese culture, which Taiwanese culture has a, a flavor of, they kind of go with things that actually work. If it's not working, they're not, they probably aren't going to do it. A absolutely. You know, and, and there are practitioners of Chinese medicine of all different qualities, you know, from amazing masters to charlatans in the country. And, you know, they, it, it, it exists. But, you know, if you're somewhat prudent and you seek out a, at least a minimally qualified practitioner, and in the States, there's a, there's a set of licensing and state laws that are in place to, to ensure that people are at least minimally qualified. And that's a pretty good standard. When you say minimally qualified, what's your definition of that? Well, you know, people that have been through some sort of an organization where they've uh, learned at a school uh, or some sort of qualified teacher, mentor, you know, and, and these, are, these are approved by the accreditation committees uh, of the United States, so, uh, not federally, but these private nationwide organizations, the national um, NCCAOM, which is the, the testing, the board exam organization. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so if you're able to sit in on the exam, you're ready somewhat by definition, have minimal qualifications in place. Okay. So basically, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're looking at somebody with years of training, not weeks of training. Years of training. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Acupuncture is something that you, it, it seems innocuous, right? We go to surgery for all kinds of stuff and put, you know, metals put into our body and things are cut out. And s somehow 
we can go home in, in a lot of those cases and we think nothing has changed. So acupuncture as a medical tool seems relatively safe. But, you know, it's, it's not about whether you put a needle in a body and you're safe. It's about the art of finding the right place and the right method of doing it. It's just like a, a woodcutter or a painter. If you give me a paintbrush, I can put paint on a paper and but, but you're not going to want to buy it. <laughs> 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 There's something about a person who has a bit of skill, a bit of intuition, and a lot of practice before that painting becomes sellable and you know before somebody wants to put it in their museum. Right. Or even in their home. Or <laughs> or even at Goodwill. <laughs> yeah, <or> you, <laughs> well, Daniel, thank you so much for being with me on the show today. This, this has been great. I've learned a lot, and I'm hoping that our listeners have as well. I want to remind everybody that there'll be some notes on the show notes page, uh, including Daniel's contact information. But you have a website, right? I have a website. Yeah, why don't you give us that address real quick? It's www.oldschoolacupuncture.com. And remember, acupuncture is only one C. <laughs> <laughs> That's you know, right. Michael, yeah. if, I, if I could, before we go, I'm not sure about our time, but there's one other folk medicine information that spreads around that I think is actually quite dangerous. Do, do I have a minute to talk about oh, that? Oh, yeah. We got as much time as we want. It, it, it's the internet. Right. It's called... It's a formula that's called Buyang Huan Wu Tang, and I'll spell that. It's Bu is B U, Yang is Y A N G, Huan is H U A N, Wu is W U, and Tang T A N G, Buyang Huan Wu Tang. And this is a formula that also spreads in the vegetarian restaurants and, and over the internet. And it's a formula that was made for strokes. It was designed for strokes. There was uh, somebody in the uh, in the in the 19th century called Wang Qingren, who decided that what people had been talking about, you know, this idea of wind causing a stroke, was somewhat erroneous. And he was able, like Vesalius in the in the West and, and other doctors, uh, Harvey, uh, he was like that in in China. He was able to do some autopsies, and he was questioning this whole thing about qi. What is qi? What is blood? And he said, you know, I, you know, I, I, he, he redefined a lot of Chinese medicine. And one of the places where he did that was in the treatment of strokes. He said, you know, strokes is not about wind. It's about blood. And it's about, it's about the lack of blood or, you know, different things associated with blood. And he, he had a very Western point of view on that, didn't he? He did have some influence with the importing of Dutch anatomy books. But what was interesting is he came up with this formula uh, called Buyang Huang Wutang. And this is a formula that has one herb that's about strengthening qi called Huang Qi, astragalus, I believe, right? And another string of herbs, five or six herbs, that were all about strengthening or or moving blood, which is uh, both about helping blood circulation and it's a little bit analogous to blood moving in the Western culture, but it, it obviously does more than that. But the thing about this that makes this dangerous is that the Huangqi, this uh, astragalus, is dosed traditionally 
at four liang. Now, four liang is about four times 40 grams, so 160 grams. For one day's supply. For one day's supply. That's a lot of huang, that's a lot of huang qi. It's a lot of huang qi. And the thing about huang qi is that it's a dose dependent herb. If you have, if you take it uh, below a certain amount, it can increase blood pressure. If you take it above a certain amount, and some people have said it's around that 80 gram mark, 70, 80 gram mark, depending on how you measure it, then it can actually help reduce blood pressure. And so if you're up at this 160 gram mark, the idea is that it can actually help reduce the blood pressure. But I have to be really cautious because I think that I've seen patients that were given doses that were like that, and they've actually caused second strokes. So, and I can't say that it was that formula, but that, and that formula is an excellent formula, and I do use it, but only in the hands of somebody that really knows herbs and when it's appropriate to do that. So, you know, there are, there are stores, you know, Amazon.com and all kinds of places now where you can buy pre-packaged patent herbs. And I would just caution anybody that has a stroke that wants to get into herbs, definitely seek somebody who's qualified. And not every acupuncture has herbal training. In fact, the majority don't. Majority don't. And for yeah. something like strokes, I think if you are going to do herbal medicine, because there are so many issues with blood pressure instability, intracranial instability, all kinds of stuff like that, it really behooves uh, you as a patient or family members to seek out somebody who can offer a prescription that uh, is safe and effective. So really the, the take home from this is if you're going to see an herbalist for this, make sure that you're seeing someone who has experience. And the other thing is just because you've read it on the internet, it doesn't mean it's true. And especially for stroke patients, you want to be careful with any formula that has Huang Chi in it. Well, I, I think you want to be careful in general. And this is also because you're not just seeing a patient that's purely yours. You're seeing a patient that might be on blood thinners, um, even if it's just aspirin. And, and that really affects how you prescribe an herbal formula. Um, it doesn't make herbal formulas dangerous or incompatible. It just means that you need somebody with experience to know what's appropriate and what dosage is appropriate. The same formula in any given any given formula can be safe or effect or or not safe depending on dosage. And you know that goes with eating carrots. You can eat too many carrots and have a, a reaction from carrot toxicity. Right? Any herbs act in the body very much like like food, and you but you know but but stronger. And so you just need to give them the proper respect they're due. Great. Thank you. That's that's really, I'm glad you brought that up. It's an important point. So again, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Michael. I, I think we'll have you back on again at some point in the future. I would be very happy to do that. And uh, I, I hope if anybody who's listening to this is in the stroke recovery, I wish them the best. And um, uh, things do get better. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Everyday Acupuncture. If so, please take a moment, click on the iTunes review button, and leave a review of the show. And be sure to tune in again next week. 